And welcome again to Calvary, Wichita. Man, what a blessing to worship this Resurrection Sunday. To worship the risen Christ. To rejoice in his name. Because that's what today is. It's a day of rejoicing. Today is a celebration. Jesus rose from the dead. Proving, proving. His death was sufficient for our forgiveness. On the cross, our brothers and sisters from 10th Hour reminded us on Friday, Jesus' next to last word was to Talistai. Paid in full. It is finished. Now anyone could have said that. But rising from the dead proved that was true. Proved that if we repent of sin and put our faith in Jesus, we stand before God forgiven, cleansed, white as snow. So we rejoice. And if we actually stopped and thought about it, if we really considered the enormity of this day, we'd probably be rejoicing a whole lot more. I'm not saying that we're not. I'm not saying we're not happy this morning. I'm not saying we're not excited. I'm not rebuking you. You guys weren't singing loud enough. No, we say he's risen indeed, and we mean it, right? But, but compare with me. In terms of celebration, let's, let's be honest, Easter takes a distant second to Christmas in, in terms of, of jubilation, right? I'm not talking about what should be. I'm talking about what is. I'm talking about just what's true, and Christmas is number one. That, that's just what is. But why? Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate Christmas. I'm not one of those crabby guys. Christmas is a reason to rejoice. The birth of the Messiah, the promised one, the long-awaited one, the word becoming flesh and coming to tabernacle among us, born in fulfillment of centuries of prophecy, coming to save us from our sin. That's not nothing. That's a reason to rejoice for sure. But the forgiveness that Jesus would bring, the fulfillment of his mission, our deliverance, our redemption, our salvation, didn't happen for more than three decades after he was born. They didn't happen at the same time. The forgiveness that he purchased, he purchased after more than 30 years after he was born. And if we're honest... We can celebrate his birth, but we don't really know when he was born. We don't know what day. God in his wisdom hasn't seen fit to, to give us that information. We would probably do something stupid with it if we had it. We don't know the day that Jesus was born, but we know when his death was. We know when his torture began. We know when his execution was completed. It happened at a time that had been prophesied for hundreds and hundreds of years. Written down, described in detail centuries before Jesus was born. Jesus was, was sacrificed for the sin of the world on Passover. Fulfilling 
the meaning implicit in that feast. Jesus was buried. He was in the ground on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Bringing to life the meaning of that feast. He was resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits because he is the first fruits of the resurrection. There's some fuzziness about the year that all of that happened because of conversion from one calendar system to another and so forth. We can argue about the year that he died and rose from the dead, but there's absolutely no question at all whatsoever about the days. The day that he became our fat Passover lamb, the day that he became the first fruits of the dead, fulfilling the meaning of each of those feasts, fulfilling the purpose and the plan that he had from way before he was born. The purpose and the plan that Father, Son, and Spirit agreed upon before together they laid the foundation of the world. If you think about it, without Easter, Christmas is just another day. Easter is what brings it all together. And, and see, the apostles knew that. The apostles knew that. The early disciples recognized that. We know because there's no mention anywhere in Scripture of anyone celebrating Christmas, other than the first Christmas. There's no reference to celebrating the anniversary of Jesus' birth. There's no reference to it in the writing of the early church fathers. In fact, as far as we can tell, no one celebrated Christmas for 400 years. It wasn't until the 4th century that this celebration, that, that our year, that our calendar in many ways revolves around, came into existence. 400 years, no Christmas. But oh, how they celebrated the resurrection. And not just on the anniversary of it. If we read the book of Acts, if we review the letters of Peter and James and John, when they talk about salvation, they talk about resurrection. We tend to talk about Jesus dying for our sins, and we stop there. We talk about the cross, and, and to listen to us, you could almost get the impression that Jesus is still hanging on the cross. When the apostles talked about the cross, when they talked about what happened, they didn't stop. They pushed through. They kept going. And they mentioned, they described Jesus rising from the dead. Acts 2, Peter's first sermon after Pentecost, describes the resurrection of the Christ. Acts 3, Peter rebukes the Jewish leaders. You killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead. Acts 4, Luke tells us, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the death of Jesus. No, to the resurrection of Jesus. Philippians 3.10, Paul prays, Oh, that I might know Jesus and the power of the resurrection. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 4.14, I'm sorry, 6.14. Paul says, God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Romans, the book that we've been studying on Sundays. Paul writes in Romans 6, 9, Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. 8.34, Christ who died and furthermore, who even more importantly, he's saying, is also risen and so on. We could keep going. We could read verses about the risen Christ all morning. Why don't we? 
we have this mindset that we focus our time and energy and our discourse on his death, and his death is monumentally important. Please don't hear anything I'm not saying. His death paid the price for our sins. But we can't stop at the cross. Yes, Jesus wanted us to remember the cross. He gave us the bread and cup to ensure we wouldn't forget the cross, to, to make sure we would never be far from taking an opportunity to meditate on the cross and the life he laid down at the cross. But Jesus did not want us to stop there. Before the cross, talking to Mary and Martha, he says in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He said that before he laid down his life. He said that before Calvary, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And the disciples, starting with Mary and Martha, I'm sure, spoke of him in exactly those terms. They talked about Jesus who came and lived and died and rose again. And we have to follow their example. We need to talk about the resurrection more than we do. And, and, and I'm not sure how the, the evangelical church came to have the emphasis that it does. I suspect if we were to go back, if we were to examine it and, and, and scrutinize it, it probably begins with the Reformation. It probably begins with the Reformers reacting to correcting the heresy, the, the false teaching that faith in Christ must be joined with good works to be effectual. We know that's not true, and we want other people to know that his death is enough, right? His blood is enough, amen? To Talisty. I mean, that's, that's hugely important. Bringing that truth back, rescuing that truth from those who distorted it, that's, that's, that's a very important part of our mission. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus plus anything is nothing. That's incredibly important. It's entirely true. But the resurrection is incredibly important and entirely true. Four reasons that I, that I want to call out this morning, why that is. The first, the resurrection proves the power of God. The resurrection declares that God is the creator of life who also holds power over death. And, 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 if, and if that were all that were true, in that God would be worthy of praise, right? No matter how advanced our technology is, no matter how seemingly wise our philosophy is, we cannot create life. We cannot defeat death. That's the unique, singular purview of God. The resurrection proves the power of God, the power over life and death. Second thing, the resurrection proves the word of God. Jesus said, the word of God said Jesus would rise from the dead. Jesus announced it at least three times. He announced it in Matthew 16, again in Matthew 17, again in Matthew 20, probably more than that. He said, I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise again on the third day. And it happened just as he said. If Jesus was telling the truth about that, reasonable, yes, reasonable to conclude he was telling the truth about other things, about 
lesser things. If I told you that next week when you come back here, there's going to be a second story built onto the church. I'm building a basketball court so I can work out at lunch. If I told you, and that's not all that's true, the inside is going to be painted purple. Basketball court, purple walls. If you pull up on Sunday, you pull into the parking lot, and you see well, there's a second story, and there's people playing basketball up there. What are you expecting when you walk in the door? Purple walls. Because if, if the harder thing happens, you expect that the lesser thing is also going to happen. If Jesus was telling the truth about the resurrection, if he said, I'm going to do it, and then he did it, if he said it was going to happen and then it happened, only reasonable to conclude, it, it just stands to reason that he was telling the truth in everything else that he said, in, in the rest of his teaching. But take it a step further. Because it wasn't just Jesus who spoke of his resurrection. The Old Testament anticipated, prophesied the resurrection. Psalm 16.10, a psalm of David believed to be understood to be messianic from the time of David, says, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, in hell, in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That sounds a lot like Messiah dying, but not staying dead. Like all prophecy, fulfilled perfectly. Psalm 22 our brothers and sisters from 10th hour took us there on Good Friday. And their familiar verses having to do with the crucifixion. The congregation of the wicked enclosing me, piercing my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. They stare at me. They gamble for my clothing. And then the prayer from the cross. You, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me. Save me. And then at the bottom of verse 21, you have answered me. Back in verse 15, we read, you've brought me to the dust of death. But then in verse 22, I'll declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I'll praise you. How can both of those things be true? They can't unless the one who dies lives again. Isaiah 53 Another clear picture of the crucifixion 700 years before Jesus hung on the cross. In verse 9, we read that they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And we understand that that was a prophecy of Jesus being crucified between two thieves, between two wicked men, but being interred, being, being entombed, in a grave borrowed from Joseph of Arimathea, a, wicked, a, a, a wealthy man. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief to make his soul an offering for sin. But then we read, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Again, we have a prophecy of death. And then we see life continuing. We see resurrection. Those are among the best known 
Old Testament prophecies. There are many more in Job. There are others in Isaiah. There are others in Psalms. There are some in Hosea. And the the logic, again, the point is this. If the word of God accurately prophesies the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus in amazingly specific, meticulously precise detail hundreds of years before it happens, what can it possibly be wrong about? The resurrection proves the power of God. The resurrection proves the word of God. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God. You wouldn't think he'd need to prove it. I mean, for three years during his public ministry, he taught like no one else, cast out demons no one could, healed like no one ever had. Doing miracles that Israel had been specifically told to expect from Messiah. Isaiah 35, verse 5, Messiah will come to save, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the lame, verse 6, shall leap like a deer. Jesus, we know from the Gospels, did both miracles. More than once, right? Healing the blind especially should have alerted Israel, should have validated in the eyes of Israel Jesus' identity. The writings of the rabbis tell us that healing the lame was not unprecedented. It had happened. Prayers of faith had, in fact, restored people to to, to being able to walk. Healing the blind had never happened. That was a signature miracle reserved for Messiah. Jesus did it, and still it wasn't enough. Still, some refused to believe. So Jesus did one more. The Pharisees and the Sadducees said, we need another miracle. We need more proof. We need more evidence. Jesus said, the the, the one and last thing I'm going to do is the sign of the prophet Jonah. That'll be the ultimate proof of who I am. What was the sign of the prophet Jonah? As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the big fish, so too was Jesus three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. When I rise again on the third day, Jesus told the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that'll be the the, the only evidence I haven't yet offered, the only proof that I have yet to give, that I am who I say that I am, that I am the Son of God. Resurrection proves the power of God, the word of God. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God. One more. Resurrection proves that Jesus came as the spotless lamb of God. That he had no sin in himself. Why is that important? Because that means he was able to be sacrificed for our sin. If if Jesus had sinned himself ever, even once, he wouldn't be a lamb without spot spot or blemish anymore. He wouldn't be able to pay the price for our sin because he would have needed to die for his own sin. But the resurrection proves he was a lamb without spot or blemish. The resurrection proves his death was effectual. If you think about it, it's the only thing that could have. A lot of people said that Jesus was without sin. That was the consistent testimony throughout his life. Even before he was born, Gabriel told Mary, he will be holy throughout his ministry. We see people calling him a holy one of God. 
Sadducees and the Pharisees made it their business to try to trap him in sin. They wanted to catch him because if they could say, look, look, he's sinning. He's sinning right over there. Do you see it? That would have proved that he wasn't the Messiah and everybody could get on with their lives. But try as they might, they couldn't trap him. At his trials, both Herod and Pilate separately said, this man is innocent. The thief next to him, the centurion watching him, said, this is innocent blood. Judas killed himself in remorse, realizing that he'd betrayed innocent blood. Even the demons. Early in his ministry, the demons called Jesus the Holy One. But what does it prove? Talk is cheap. If we want to be utterly certain, if we want to be thoroughly convinced that Jesus was perfectly innocent and able to die in our place, he needed to rise again. Because what does that prove? It proves death has no claim on him. Death is a consequence of sin. There was no death in the universe before sin. Death is a consequence of sin. Jesus had no son of his own. Death could not hold him. And because he rose again, we know our sin is taken away, and we know death will not hold us. The resurrection proves Jesus didn't need to be forgiven, so it proves that we can be forgiven. It proves we will rise from the dead like Christ. It proves we'll spend eternity with Christ. Without that proof, without that proof, this morning would be ridiculous. We would be idiots. That's not me, that's Paul. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, we are pitiable, beyond pathetic. But Jesus is risen. And in his resurrection, we have proof. We have proof of his identity, his sufficiency, his word's accuracy. And we have proof of our freedom and our forgiveness and our future. And so we rejoice this morning. Kinda. Sorta. It it brings us back to, to where we started. If all of this is true, and the resurrection is what proves this is true, why are we not more excited? Not 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 we in this room, we the church. Why is today not a bigger day than it is? I mean, in light of everything we're talking about, shouldn't Resurrection Sunday dwarf Christmas? Just eclipse it, blot it out? Why doesn't it? I don't know, probably a lot of reasons. Some historical, some cultural. I wonder if some aren't grammatical. I wonder if the language that we use to talk about Jesus doesn't get in the way of us worshiping him. Because we use a lot of words to talk about our relationship with Jesus and his promises and our future. One of the words we use a lot, because the Bible uses it a lot, is hope. Romans 5, Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 15, he says, we abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Timothy 1, he talks about Jesus Christ, our hope. In Thessalonians, he talks about the hope of our salvation. And again, we could keep going and going. Dozens of time in Scripture. Hope. We, we sang about it, very beginning of service. 
We sang Jesus Christ, our living hope. We could have sang in Christ alone, our hope is found, but we sang Jesus Christ, our living hope. That comes from 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I wonder if that isn't part of our problem. I wonder if that isn't part of why Easter is just sort of, yeah, it's cool. Dress up, have brunch, look for an egg. I, I wonder if, if, if part of the thing getting, getting in the way of our exaltation isn't a misunderstanding of this word hope, even subconsciously. Because when you and I see, when we hear, when we read the word hope, what do we translate that to in our minds? Maybe. Maybe. I realized yesterday the anniversary of my mom's death is coming up. Um, she's been with the Lord for six years. She survived two rounds of breast cancer, and then when it came back the third time, it was breast, it was liver, it was lung, it was, it was yeah. And I remember the whole time, I think it was 12, almost 13 years all told that, that she battled cancer. The word her oncologist used most often other than the word copay, <laughs> was, was hope. When she was first diagnosed, they said, well, we're going to watch and wait. We want to see how it behaves. That'll help us understand it. We're going to watch it, and we'll hope it doesn't grow. And it grew, so they did surgery. And they said after the surgery, well, we hope we got it all. And when they didn't, well, let's do radiation and chemo, and we'll hope that does the trick. And then she went into remission, and she was in remission for five years, and we started to ask, okay, does, does this mean she's cancer-free? Well, we hope so. Every step along the way, he'd be talking about hope. But, but every step along the way, what does that translate to in our brain? What, what does that translate to in our experience? Uncertainty, right? We hear hope, and we think definite possibility of a firm maybe. It could happen, it could not. And we remember the times that it turned out to be not, don't we? Get to my age, you've had a lot of those. What am I saying? Any age. <laughs> there have been a lot of those. That's just the world we live in. That's how the world works. Sometimes we get what we hope for, a lot of times we don't. We tell each other, don't get your hopes up. If you get your hopes up, they, good chance they'll come crashing down. An optimist is never pleasantly surprised. So how do we reconcile that with a Bible that says hope does not disappoint? Not ever, Romans 5.5. Because we're over here, I hope my team will win. I hope my mom will pull through. I hope I don't get laid off. I hope I win the lottery. I hope we have ice cream for dessert. But we say all of that knowing full well there's a really good chance that it won't happen. We say that understanding that we're saying maybe, except with Jesus. There's no maybe with Jesus. How do we know? He rose from the dead. The resurrection proves when we're talking about Jesus, when we're reading what the Bible says, what the prophet said, what the apostles said, when we read what Jesus said about Jesus, hope is a sure thing. It's not a maybe. It's not even a probably. It's a 100% absolute certainty. Hope in the Bible is another way of saying, thus saith the Lord. 
It's something we can rest in and trust in and depend upon. When we read hope in the Bible, that's God saying, I've said it, that settles it, it will happen. How do we know? Because the resurrection happened. When we read what Jesus says about us, the resurrection proves that too. When we read about the future and hope we have in Jesus, that's not a maybe. It's a certainty. Jesus has begotten us again. Fact. We're born again. Truth to a living hope. Reality. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hope is alive because Jesus is alive. Our hope is eternal because we're raised again with him to eternal life. And if you hear this morning wondering questioning, maybe doubting, maybe hoping. Is there really a heaven? Can we know God? Can we be forgiven? Can we really be sure? Look around and ask yourself, why is this happening? Why is this happening here? Why are all of these people here? Why are people like us gathering in churches like this one all around the world this morning? Because the resurrection is fact. Professional soldiers were guarding the tomb under penalty of death if they let anything happen to Jesus' body. And yet that morning the tomb was still empty. Hundreds of people saw the risen Christ, heard him speak, interacted with him. Hundreds of people. And hundreds of people chose to die, let themselves be put to death, rather than recanting, rather than confessing, you're right, it was just a conspiracy. Chuck Colson, who was part of a conspiracy, he was part of the Watergate scandal, became a Christian in prison and would often say Watergate proved the resurrection to him. Hundreds of people died rather than admitting that the resurrection was, was something that it wasn't. He says, 12 guys couldn't keep a secret for a few weeks after Watergate. Who dies for a lie? The resurrection is fact. And because the resurrection is fact, forgiveness is fact. Eternity is fact. And heaven without tears or pain, heaven with Jesus, is fact. Those who put their faith in Jesus will rise with him. Have you taken that step? Have you made that decision? Because because that is necessary. God has this crazy esteem for our free will. He's creator of the universe, sovereign over all creation. But he lets us choose to worship him or not. We had that choice in the garden. And Adam and Eve, on behalf of the whole human race, said, ah, not. And don't be hard on them. If we had been there, we would have done the same thing. They were representative of us in that they did what we would do. Today, we have that same free will. God sent his son to die on the cross to give us another chance at that same decision 
God or not God. Our sin separated us from the God who created us, and we would have stayed there forever. When we rebelled against God, crime requires punishment. And when, when, when you sin against an eternal God, the punishment is eternal separation from God. It's God giving us what we want. You don't want me? Fine. You won't have me? Not now, not ever, not forever. But God in his mercy said, let me offer these lowly humans another chance. But, but i got to do it in a way that satisfies my justice. I can't just pretend that rebellion didn't happen. So God sent his son to die on the cross. God became human and died on a cross. He had to be human so he could die. That's what our sin required. It required death. It required blood. But he had to be God so that one death could count for billions of people. What an elegant and beautiful, and tragic, and horrible solution. The love, though, of God laying down his life that we might live. Jesus died to give us another opportunity to choose God or not God. He will not force that choice upon us. Just as in the garden, he gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to choose to follow him or not. Today, he gives us a, cho a choice, a, an opportunity to choose Jesus or not, to believe on his sacrifice or not, to accept it or not. Have you made that choice? Have you made that decision? Have you said yes to the free gift of salvation that Jesus purchased at a measurable price? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as those who have called upon the name of the Lord praise and pray, if you haven't made up your mind about Jesus, can I encourage you to take these few minutes and ponder, what's stopping me? Why wouldn't I? eternal life with Jesus, heaven with no pain and no sorrow, heaven where the very worst thing is better than the very best thing on earth, or eternal separation from God in darkness and anguish. We don't deserve that choice. We already had it once and we blew it. By the death of Jesus, we're given another opportunity to choose because he is risen, we know that we can trust when we choose. God will answer our prayer. He'll give us the new life. It's there for the asking. And if you've never said yes, would you take these few minutes to consider that? Lord, I pray for each one here. Those who have known you and walked with you for years, those who are brand new believers, coming to understand how great your love is and those who are watching from afar. Lord, where my words have failed, I pray that your spirit would speak, that you'd draw people to yourself. 
that you'd reveal yourself, that you'd manifest your love, that you would testify to the truth and the necessity of salvation. Spirit, would you speak now?